Like that is the thing that is driving us as we move forward. As elders, board, staff, our leadership, we want to see lives transformed with the gospel in our city renewed. And we have four distinctives that are going to help move us in that way. The first one is to be gospel-centered. The second one is to be contemplative. The third is to be authentic. And the fourth is to be missional. And over these next four weeks, we're going to be focusing in on those specific distinctives. And so this morning, we're going to be talking about what it means to be a community who is gospel-centered. And so I'll begin here. I was doing some research on, on advertisement. This was something that was uh, brought curiosity to me. Uh, messages, messages shape us. Uh, messages shape us and advertising uh, companies are well aware of that. And so what was interesting is that in the 1900s, the early 1900s, there was a shift in how advertising companies uh, pursued consumers. And so prior to the early to mid 1900s, it was very factual uh, in how advertising advertising companies uh, communicated product. And so, you know, take, take us back to the 1940s. You have, you know, two different dishwashers. You have a Maytag and you have a, a GE uh, washing machine. And so these were, the way they advertised these two different washing machines was this one's going to clean your clothes versus this one's going to clean your clothes. It was very just what the function of it is. And so they learned that that was not going to be helpful in how they sell products. They realized that if you brought purpose and you brought meaning into what you're buying, it shifted how you could grab people and how you could cause them to be won over and buy your product. And so instead of a washing machine simply being something that cleans your clothes, it's now something that's going to cause you to be beautiful. It's going to cause you to smell good. It's going to cause you to be liked by more people. And all of a sudden, it wraps you in. And you see it in the commercials we have today. 16,000 advertisements we get daily. I mean, this is hard to grapple with. That is what studies say. And so we're constantly being fed these messages that are trying to allure us and trying to cause us to be drawn into meaning, drawn into purpose. If you buy this, if you have this, if you own this, then something's going to happen in your soul. The problem is those things are just puffing smoke. They can't actually provide what they say they will provide. But they've recognized that we are drawn into messages. And it's through purpose and meaning that causes us to come alive. And we're drawn to that. And so likewise, this is how we're wired. And, and this is the message that Jesus provides to us. That the life of Jesus lived through the kingdom that he brought actually shapes and forms our lives in a really significant way. And so we, we as a community want to be tethered to this message and we believe it has the opportunity to shape and mold and transform and renew us in ways that are pretty spectacular. So I want to flesh this out with you. And so I want to begin by just considering what is the gospel? If we are a gospel-centered community, what is the gospel? Great question. And so the gospel is, the word gospel means good news. It's a communication that means good news. And it's the good news, it's a message about the good news that Jesus came and uh, through his cross, through his resurrection, through his future coming kingdom, he brings hope to the world. So the gospel is a message, it's a declaration of good news, specifically good news found in Jesus. It's a message that be, uh, explains how the world started, it explains how we are where we are, and explains where it is going. So the gospel message has, you know, as I've just kind of considered this, it's, it's been watered down in that, like, I think if we're honest, there's been kind of this understanding of the gospel that it's like something you need to, like a doorway you walk through. 
Like it's something that you weren't, and then you step through it, you trust in Jesus, and now it's behind you. It's something that you needed to trust in to get out your get-out-of-hell-free card, and then once you trust in it and move past, it's now behind you. But that's not actually the way the gospel is designed to be. It was never designed to be a doorway. It's designed to be a, the, the ground, the path that we actually stand on as we live our lives and follow Jesus. It's not a doorway we walk through. It's a ground that we stand on as we seek to follow Jesus. It's who we are. So there's two complementary perspectives of the gospel. The first would be a, a macro view of the gospel. And so macro meaning kind of a larger scale picture of the gospel. And so this would look like four things. If you're taking notes, there's four ways that the macro view of the gospel plays out. It is uh, first creation, then fall, then reconciliation, and then restoration. And so the first, it begins with creation. That God created the cosmos, and he created it good. And he created it for his namesake. It communicates as you look into the world, as you go to national parks, as you look up into the heavens, you see a picture of the creativity and the majesty of God. And so creation communicates that to us. And so God created, he is the author, and he created all things. So we see creation. He created a good with beauty and wonder. The heavens declare his creativity and majesty. And so creation. Then fall. That's, that's where uh, sin enters into the story. We see it early on in Genesis chapter 3. We see that the serpent comes into the garden. We see that there's a, a riot, that humanity rebelled against the design of the creation. And they said, we want to be in charge. We don't want God to be in charge. And in that moment, a fracture of sin occurred and death entered and havoc has ensued ever since. So in this macro view of the gospel, we now understand why there's injustice. We now understand why there's sorrow. We now understand why there's death. All of that is tied to the fall that occurred and continues to occur even to this day. And so we see creation. We see fall. Third, we see reconciliation. That God didn't leave us in that space. That he chose to write himself into our story to reconcile us, to reconcile the world, to reconcile all things to himself. Tim Keller shares a quote from C.S. Lewis, uh, and it says this. Uh, he, uh, he says, when a, when a Russian cosmonaut returned from space and reported that he had not found God. And so he reports that this Russian goes up into space, comes back, and he's like, no, officially, there is no God. And C.S. Lewis responds to that, and he says um, that this was like Hamlet going into the attic of his castle and looking for Shakespeare. Like, it just doesn't make sense, right? And so in the same way, good, I'm glad you got it. And so in the same way, we see that God wrote himself into our story as the main character of the story. He wasn't just the author standing off at a distance, but he actually wrote himself into the story as the main character to bring about reconciliation. That's what he did in Jesus. God, the creator, became creation. We can't just go to the heavens to try to find him, but we see that in Jesus, historically, he came, and he came to reconcile all things to himself. So we see creation. We see fall. We see... Uh, we see reconciliation, and lastly, we see restoration, that Jesus will come again. We talked about this through the book of Revelation. 
and that he will bring all things new. He will wipe away every tear from every eye. He will make all things sad come untrue. He will fix the things that are broken. He will swallow death forever. Sin will now be no more. All those temptations and those difficulties and the mental health issues you deal with and all the trouble that goes through in your life will now be in the rearview mirror forevermore. And we look forward to that day, that day of restoration where Jesus makes everything new. And so, yeah, so we see a macro view of the gospel, creation, fall, uh, reconciliation, and restoration, that he's going to cause all things to be made new. That's one way that we see the gospel. And then there's another way that's a more personal view of the gospel, communicating the same thing but affects us just on a personal level. That again, God created man with no sin and woman with no sin to reflect his glory. We see that man and woman, we rebelled against God. So we see God is the first part of this personal view. We see man and woman are this second piece that we rebelled against God and that sin fractured everything and it fractured our relationship with God. We are now fractured from God because of sin. And the third piece we see for this part, personal view, we see God, man, Christ, that Jesus, again, he came through his death, burial, resurrection to reconcile us back to his Father. And what's different about the fourth piece for the personal view of the gospel is that we are called to respond So we see God, we see man and woman, we see Christ, and then the call for us personally is to actually respond to that message. We see that it's an opportunity for us through the Spirit to respond and to surrender to God's provision and God's design. See, we are now caught up in this story and we're invited into this, this story that God has invited you into to redeem what was broken in the fall. And that is what we see in the personal view. So we are now all called to respond to this message, to hear that God has rescued us, and to respond and submit our lives and surrender ourselves to God. See, the gospel is a message of God's redemptive plan through Jesus. Jesus is the centerpiece of the gospel, and without Jesus, there is no gospel. The only reason why it is good news is because of Jesus. You cannot have gospel without having Jesus. You cannot pursue shalom. You cannot pursue justice. You cannot pursue anything truly and fully without Jesus as the cornerstone. So we see, that is the story of the gospel. So the second point that, again, won't be on the screen here, but I'll try to give it to you, is that the gospel was always meant to be central in the church. And this is where we're going to dive deep into the scripture. The gospel was always meant to be central in the church. And in three ways we see it. The first is that the gospel was central to Jesus. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 23, the message that Jesus gave as he came into the world was a gospel of the kingdom. And he caused that message to lead people to repent. He preached the gospel of the kingdom. And then that's at the beginning of his ministry. At the very end of his ministry, after he rose again, we see in Acts chapter 1, verse 3. Again, this is when you pull out your handy-dandy Bible or Bible app, and we see that he presented himself alive to them after suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And so from the beginning of his ministry to the end of his ministry, Jesus was constantly reminding his disciples about the good news of his kingdom over and over and over and over again. And then Jesus promises that in Matthew 24, verse 14, again, we are just 
probably going to hit 20 verses, 20 different sections this morning. So again, perfect day for the screens to not work. So Matthew 24, but you guys brought your Bibles, and so this is good. Matthew 24, verse 14, it says, and the, this, this is at the end of the age, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a, <clears throat> as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. You see, this, not only was this the message that Jesus had at the beginning of his ministry, at the end of his ministry before he ascended into heaven, but it's also going to be the message that's going to be proclaimed throughout the whole world before he comes again. That's really important to Jesus' ministry. But it wasn't just important to his ministry, it was important to the early church. And so I want you guys to set eyes on how important the gospel was to the early church, because I think we can miss how important it was. These, these letters that we get, uh, starting in Romans and following through pretty much the rest of the New Testament, are letters to Christians, like real people like us, and real places and real cities with real difficulties. And Paul and Peter and other writers wrote to these people to encourage them. So when you read Ephesians, or you read 1 Peter, like it's actually written to real people in real time, like you and me, with specific purposes. And what's interesting is as you read those letters, again, Romans onward, you find that in every single letter to Christians, there is a reminder of the gospel. Because again, it's not a doorway that we walk through and then we forget. It's the very foundation that we stand upon as we live our lives. And so let's flesh out what that looks like. In Romans chapter 1, we see uh, this church in Rome, we see that the gospel is now blown all the way to Asia Minor. It is spreading like wildfire in this Greco area. And there's now confusion on how Jews that are now Christians and Greeks that are now Christians, how do they interact together? And so Paul writes this lengthy letter to the church in Rome. And in Romans 1.16, he says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And now in chapter 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, and 8, Paul lays out what that gospel is. I mean, lengthy, not to lost people that need to hear the gospel, but to people who are Christians, who are following Jesus, to remember the gospel. He spent half of this letter focusing on what the gospel is is. We move on to just a letter over to 1 Corinthians. We see that this, uh, this church was deeply confused. It was divided. It was confused around sexuality. Sounds familiar to us even today. And he writes them about the gospel. In 1 Corinthians 1, starting in verse 12, he says this, what I mean is that each, of, each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. Verse 17, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied by its power. For the word of the cross is fully to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And so he begins to lay out even in more detail the, the wisdom of the gospel as he's about to engage a conversation around sexuality and around division. He centers it on the gospel. Then we go to Galatians. 
And we're going to just move in down here in Galatians chapter um, 1. So if you're confused on where Galatians is, it's God eats popcorn, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. And in Galatians chapter 1, Paul says, For I am astonished that you are also so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I, again, I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. And then he goes on in chapter 3 and he talks about how they've run away from the gospel. And so what happened in this church in Galatia is that they had received the gospel. It was like a doorway to them. And then they spent the rest of their lives white knuckling, trying to live out their faith apart from standing upon the gospel. And tries to remind them the importance of the gospel and the grace of Jesus as the cornerstone for us. And so, so far in Rome, Paul is proclaiming the gospel to them. In Corinth, Paul is proclaiming the gospel to them. In Galatia, Paul is proclaiming the gospel to them. We go to Ephesians chapter 2. Again, God eats and then popcorn. Uh, and so we have in Ephesians 2, uh, there's this question on how faith shapes our lives. And so in Ephesians 1 through 3, Paul lays out what the gospel is. And then 4 through 6, he lays out what that looks like practically for your lives. And so in Ephesians chapter 2, writing to Christians, Paul says this, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins, and when you once walked following the course of, this air, course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Paul reminds the church in Ephesus of the significance of the message of Jesus, not just for those that are lost, but for those that are in Christ, to remember who we are, what defines us, what is our core identity. Again, we can go on and on. I'll just give you two more in Titus. Fast forward just a little bit later. Fast, uh, fast forward past First and Second Timothy, and you'll get to Titus. And he encourages this, this, these people, he encourages Titus, Paul does, uh, into good works, as he's one of the elders of the church in Ephesus. And he reminds him of the importance of leading his community in good works. But he resets on the centrality of the gospel. And he says this in Titus 2, 11 and following. He says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so again, he's reminding 
this church. Don't just enter into good works by your own merits, but remember that Christ has chased you down, that Christ loves you, that Christ is pursuing you, and allow that to motivate you, not by fear, not by shame, but by the grace of our Lord Jesus. Let that motivate you. And then lastly, in 1 Peter, uh, starting in verse 1, we see uh, past Hebrews and James. In 1 Peter, we see this this exiled community, this community that is exiled in their place, in their day and time. And he wanted to encourage them, Peter did, by resetting upon the centrality of the gospel. And he says this in verse 3 of chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes through it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You know, Peter knows is that these people have gone through difficulty, they've gone through hardship, they've gone through trials, they've gone through trouble, they've been confused, their faith has been wavered, and what does he remind them of to recenter them? It's the gospel. This was the ethos of the early church. It was ride or die. It was the oxygen that sustained them. It was their foundation. The early church was gospel-centered. And so it makes sense why we would want to be a community who is centered on the message of Jesus, allowing us to reset over and over again upon this message. So likewise, just as Jesus's main message was the gospel of the kingdom, just like the early church and all of the churches around Asia Minor were focused on the gospel of Jesus, so likewise, we want to be a community centered upon the gospel. Man, we need it. I don't know if you feel that. I know I do. Have you ever played an instrument that's super untuned? It's just like, ah, it's just kind of painful. Well, that's us. Like, we are naturally untuned by the world, by our flesh, by the devil. We are untuned by our own shame, by our own insecurities. We are reminded over and over again by our imperfections. And it's the gospel that reorients us. It's the gospel that reminds us of what is true, what is good, what defines us, what shapes us. See, we are not just the summation of what we do. We are not the summation of what we have. We are not the summation of what others say about us. We are loved by Jesus Christ. And it shapes us. Like to the core that shapes who we are. Our baptism and our communion that we take every Sunday proclaims to the core of who we are that we are defined by the message of Jesus. See, this message reminds us of the grace that defines us and liberates us. It's not shame, it's not fear, it's not failure, it's not your merit. No, the extravagant love and mercy of Jesus is what defines us, that God demonstrated his love for you. You don't need an angel to show up to you to tell you how much God loves you. Look to the cross and see the depth of God's love and care and kindness that he has for you. This alone defines you. 
everything else. Someone's praise will be someone's rejection the next day. The promotion will end up being a demotion in time, potentially. All of these things fade. They are up and down, but the gospel is constant, and it's stable, and it doesn't waver on your good days or bad days. It doesn't waver on your emotional status. It is consistent, and it gives security and stability to us in a wavering culture that wants to define one thing one way and the next day another thing. All the time, we're redefined, and the culture defines it, but there's stability and consistency in the goodness of Jesus. So to be gospel-centered, this would have been on the screen, so just close your eyes and feel it out. To be gospel-centered is to define who we are by how God views us in Christ. There is a deep and real pressure to define yourself by what you do or what you own. And the gospel compels us to redefine ourselves with a new identity, an identity that was given to us through Jesus. Because of Jesus, you are loved, righteous, blameless, holy, adopted, redeemed, and cared for. To be gospel-centered is to regularly remind ourselves of who we are in Christ and when we lose focus, to reset on the gospel of Jesus. The gospel tells us that we are much worse than we think we are, and the gospel tells us that God's love for us is much more than we could ever fathom. This is why we're gospel-centered. It defines who we are. The story of Jesus has now invaded our lives, and we are now being formed into a new way of life by the way and practices of Jesus, by the grace of Jesus, by a way of repentance. We're consistently wanting to turn our hearts and to tune our hearts towards Jesus and his message to us, trying to retune ourselves towards the message of Jesus. This is the ground we stand on as we follow Jesus, and this is what it means to be gospel-centered. We are a community committed to this story. We believe it has power through the Holy Spirit to shape you to the core. And so if we want to see lives transformed and our city renewed, there is one message and there is one spirit that has the ability to shape us to the core. It is not uh, the, the latest and greatest New York Times book. It's not a self-help message. It is a declaration of God to us that he has ransomed us and loved us by his sheer grace and mercy and to the core that is designed to shape us. So man, we gather on Sundays to remember that. We sing songs that reflect that. We preach and recenter ourselves week in and week out on that. We close our gathering every week with communion to declare to us what is true about us in the gospel. We are gospel-centered. We scatter into community groups throughout the week to remember and to reset on this story. We are a community that's committed to being gospel-centered. See, the gospel isn't I obey and I am therefore accepted. The gospel is, I am fully accepted, and therefore I obey. You know how significant that difference is? One is motivated by shame. One is motivated by, I have to do more to be pleasing to God. The other is, I couldn't be more accepted than I am right now. Grace has been lavished to me, and therefore all that I have is his. There is a very different heart posture in being gospel-centered and not. It frees us to love people who don't deserve it. It frees us to recognize his care for us. And it frees us from the shame that we have as tape recorders in our lives. We are a gospel-centered community. 
So as a community who is committed to being gospel-centered, we allow this not just to be a vertical, transformative message, but it also causes us to interact with people different. When we truly allow the gospel to shape us to the core, it, it changes how we interact with people. It changes how we approach relationships. It changes how we engage other people. And so I have three ways that a healthy gospel culture is, is shaped in our midst. I want to give those to you. The first is this. The first way that we kind of interact, allow the gospel to shape us on a practical front. There's more ways than this, but three that are kind of core to us is that we share appreciation. You know, in, in Romans, it tells us after Paul lays out the depth of the gospel, he then reminds us, outdo one another in showing honor. To sh- seek to show appreciation to one another. So the first is we share our appreciation. You know, we honestly are just a bunch of broken people, insecure, trying to make our way through life, trying to do our best and falling on our face more times than we want to admit. And we show up on Sunday and we try to put our best foot forward, but deep down we're just really insecure and filled with shame. Right? Three of us. Cool. So the rest of you guys, sick. Maybe this isn't the right place for you because this is a hospital for people. And you know what we need? Courage. We need to feel encouraged by people. To know you're not alone. To know you, you have the spirit, that God cares for you, that God is with you. We need deeply encouragement. We need to feel appreciated. We need to feel support. And man, that brings wind in our sails to know we're not alone, to know that we're in this together. So we value appreciation. We value the, this desire to outdo one another in showing honor. I know for me, I, I am a sarcastic dude. And I know this is an ongoing journey for myself. I want to be, I just saw my son in the back, he goes, <laughs> so, sorry, bro. Um, but I value this. this. This means this, that I, I might have sarcasm in my bones, but Jesus is teaching me how to show appreciation and how to outdo one another in showing honor. That's what it looks like to follow Jesus. So we share our appreciation. Secondly, we believe the best in people. We naturally, by our flesh, choose to judge one another. We think we know the heart motive of somebody else and we judge them before we ask them and we place upon them judgment that they probably don't deserve and we put upon them because we assume we know what their motive is. We jump to negative interpretations of others' motives all the time. We quickly judge people instead of giving them the benefit of the doubt. You know, we might not see the full picture. We might not understand what's happening inside of them. So we want to extend grace. As we've been given grace, do we just hoard it? Or do we extend it, right? Like the way that we live out the gospel is giving this grace that we don't deserve and then we give it to others as our first move to somebody else. You know, our judgments may be right, but we want to be curious first. It's not quick to judgment, but curious first. And so we believe the best in people. So again, first culture, uh, cultural value, we share our appreciations. The things that we think about somebody when we come to uh, our gathering on Sunday or in community group, like, man, they're so hospitable. Man, they're so kind. They're so generous. And we think it and we never share it. And just showing appreciation is actually sharing with them what we're thinking. So we share our appreciation. We believe the best in people. And then third, whether single or married, We allow our lives to show off Christ. 
We allow the gospel to shape us in our singleness and in our marriage. We invite our singles and marrieds to be a sign and a wonder of the gospel to the world. So for singles, your singleness models a passion and can be a sign and a wonder of the world of your devotion to Christ that supersedes this life, knowing that there is a coming day where there will be no more marriage. And so you can posture yourself if you are single and showing the world your devotion to Jesus. I mean, as the church, we need that. We need singles in our midst. And we need to be reminded of the declaration that can be shown through our singleness. And then for marrieds, and don't settle for the puny vision of marriage in America. If you just live together, don't get a divorce, you win. And the gospel invites us into so much more than that. Your marriage is the loudest gospel message that you can proclaim if you're married. You're invited to showcase Christ and his church through your marriage. Don't settle. I did, a, uh, I did Michael and, and Brooke's um, mar- wedding last night. I officiated it and reminded them to always be a student of each other. Like to never get to the point in your marriage where you're like, I figured you out. The moment you get to that point, it's a dead end. Live your life if you're married, being a student of your spouse, always learning, always growing, always pursuing, and that becomes a showcase and a spotlight of Christ and his love for us. So again, three cultural values. We share our appreciation. We believe the best in people. And whether single or married, man, we seek to show off Christ to the world. The message of Jesus tethers us into a story, and at Sojourn, we cling to this as first importance. Friends, we're gospel-centered. This is who we are. This is what we're committed to. This is what we long for. This is a foundation we want to stand upon. And so as we close, man, I want to invite us to remember. I want us to invite us to remember. Some of us just want to move past. We get tired of the same old thing. You know if you're that kind of person. You just get tired of the same thing. And man, the gospel, we must fight to never get tired of. It is beautiful. It is transformative. And it frees us. And so I, I don't know, you know, coming this week, maybe for you, 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 there's just deep levels of insecurity and shame that have been triggered over the last week or weeks. And you just feel deep down just disappointed in yourself. Friends, I want to remind you of the gospel. You're not defined by your emotions. You're not defined by the, the worst of you or the broken side of you. You're defined by Jesus. I mean, you come, come in with your chest puffed out a little bit, and you, you just got the promotion. You're feeling really good about life. You're crushing. It feels like everything for now. And I want to remind you of the gospel. You're not more loved because of that. You're only defined by Jesus. It's what shapes us and what molds us. And you feel like your parenting is doing well or it's, you feel like, I don't even know how and why God allowed me to be a parent. Like, you, we were there. I get it. Man, remember the gospel. That's the only thing that's going to motivate you to love your kids. Really. It's the gospel. To remember that you are loved and remember that you've been given grace and that helps you in your parenting and how you care for them. It plays out in every aspect of life. God is so wise in how he's given us this message through Jesus that motivates us and heals us and frees us. So friends, we are a gospel-centered community. Let's pray together. We thank you, Lord, that you are, your eyes are like a flame of fire. You are so aware of where we are 
the highs and the lows, the good, bad, the ugly. Thank you, you're not afraid of our brokenness. You actually say, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. Come to me if you're broken, and I'll give you rest. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I'm gentle and humble in heart. Lord, we give you thanks for the way that you are like a surgeon. You're like a doctor that loves to bring healing to our lives. And you're gracious and you're compassionate and you're slow to anger and you're abounding in loving kindness. And God, we want to know you in this way. We want to be shaped by you in this way. Lord, I pray that you would do a deep work in my friends. I pray that we would know the height and width and length and depth of the love of Jesus. I pray that we would know the love of Christ that passes knowledge, that we would be filled with the fullness of God. Would you stir us towards this 